I'll be reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. And you may be seated. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I am very excited you are here with us this morning. Good morning. You guys doing well? I hope so. God is good. It is not good for man to be alone. And uh, 2.18 of Genesis, and that happened before the fall. So it's part of how God created us. We need each other. And so it's been, it's been about eight, nine weeks apart. Now we are back together again. And believe me, you have no idea how excited I am to speak to a live audience. My goodness. It's it, uh, it's, it was really hard. I would rather speak three services before a live audience than one service before a camera. <laughs> it is the awkwardest thing in the world. And so uh, I'm glad you guys were able to stay up with what we're talking about. We're working through a teaching series, Unshakable Identity. Everybody has an identity. We as believers have an unshakable identity. And we've been looking at the characteristics of this unshakable identity. And we now come to the next one in our list, and that is we are a masterpiece created for good works. And the text that was just read, Romans 12, 1 through 8, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and follow along. We'll be dissecting those verses. But let me begin by asking you some questions as it relates to being a masterpiece. Are you God's masterpiece? Are you God's masterpiece? In other words, Is there evidence that God is working in you? Is there evidence in your life that the God who began a good work in you is carrying it on to completion? That's Philippians 1, 1, 6. Now, the foundation of this particular teaching is based on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The first two verses, 8 and 9, talk about when God begins his work in us. Verse 10 is talking about his work continuing in us. Let me read these verses for you. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you've memorized some of these. And it says this, Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's where he began his work in us, by grace through faith in Christ. This is what you need to understand, and it's, it's hard for us to get this in, into our, our head, but you don't need to work to earn God's acceptance. You don't have to work for that. Most people I talk to, they, they talk about almost like they're having to work to get God's acceptance. You have God's acceptance. Jesus purchased it once and for all on the cross. It's a done deal. 
along with his acceptance, you have his security and, and a significance that comes from him. And that's, that's absolutely amazing. So your bad days can't diminish it. Your good days can't increase it. Regardless of the roller coaster you feel that you might be on, as we all are on, is that he still loves us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is absolutely free to us, but infinitely costly to him. That is amazing grace. Amazing grace. And so that's where he began his good work in us. Uh, By the way, let me just say something about using the word amazing. I was listening to a guy this last week, and he said, we overuse that word in our culture, and it's kind of lost its meaning. And for instance, I, I, uh, that hamburger that I just ate was amazing. You know, people will use it like that, and I'm, I've never had an amazing hamburger, and you might come up at the end of the service and say, well, I know where there's an amazing hamburger. Well, you're missing my point, okay? You're really missing my point. It's like you're overusing that word. Maybe it's a good hamburger, but it's not an amazing hamburger because when we talk about amazing, we're talking about wow. We're talking about God. He is amazing. And so his grace is amazing. Awe and wonder. That's, that would be a normal, healthy response to all of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so that's when he begins his work in us. We repent, we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now verse 10, he says, for we are God's workmanship. The Greek word there is poema. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word poem. And uh, you could say that we are God's workmanship. We are his work of art would be another way of saying it. I prefer the word masterpiece. So we are God's masterpiece. And so this gives a whole new meaning to the words, you are a piece of work. <laughs> so go ahead and turn to the person next to you and say that real quick. You are a piece of work. I know some of you are saying it to me, okay? My wife says it to me all the time. You are a piece of work. You are a piece of work. So we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you're a masterpiece created for good works. How can I fully realize this truth in my life? And so we're going to answer that question. We'll answer this question also. How do I know that God has begun a work in me and will carry it on to completion? Basically, the question is, have I truly been converted Have I experienced regeneration in my heart? Am I truly born again is what we're asking. And so we'll answer that from our text in Romans 12, 1 through 8. So let's start with the first point. Number one, consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God. So it's not something you just do once. You need to have done that first and initially, but you do this daily. Every day as you live out this life, And so consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God. And this is based on verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your holy and acceptable worship to God. And in fact, I just misquoted it, but let me go back to my notes here. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in that verse, he's giving us the why, the motive for uh, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he gives us the what. He's going to help us describe, he's describing the what of this. Consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God. The why. Here's the motive. So he says, I appeal to you therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? It's pointing back to the first 11 chapters of Romans. And and, and that's what he's talking about. So So therefore, brothers, and then he he, he gives us a summary statement of those first 11 chapters. By the mercies of God, he's calling the first 11 chapters, do you see the mercies of God? Uh, one, one definition of the mercies of God would be his affection for us. Do you see, are you, are you overwhelmed by the affection of God for you? Plural, mercies. And uh, so what he's saying here is that if, if you are living in the sweet spot of God's affection 
before you, then you will, and here's the what, you will present your bodies, every part of you, your whole life, as a living sacrifice. Now, what is that living sacrifice? Ooh. It's meant to kind of remind you of the Old Testament sacrifice where they bring an animal and cut it up, put it on the altar to God. But we are to be a living sacrifice. We're not to kill ourselves on an altar somewhere, but we are to be a living. As we live out our lives, we are to be a living sacrifice. You could say that the word means living, a living killing. Your life is to be a living killing. So what are you killing You're killing every day something in your life for Christ's sake. You, what are you killing? Your desires, goals, and dreams, and living for His. That's what you're killing. Now remember, sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something that you love more. (laughs) And if you love Jesus with all of your heart, anything less than that would be abnormal in the Christian life, then there are going to be things that you love, though you love, you're going to get rid of them because you love him more. So sacrifice is is getting rid of those things, letting go of those things you love for for someone that you love more. And this is what I have found in my own life, that he has put my desires, goals, and dreams to shame with his desires, goals, and dreams. You see, whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you gain in him. It is out of this world. And did I start off with my own desires, goals, and dreams? Oh, absolutely. But I killed them for the sake of what he had for me. (laughs) and it's been better by far, beyond what I deserve, more than I've ever dreamed. It's out of this world what he has in store for us as we live for him and his his glory. And, uh, And so then he says, this which is your spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. The Greek here literally means it is your logical service. It's your logical service. Anything less than total and complete sacrifice of ourselves to God is completely irrational. So if you give yourself partially or or half-heartedly to God, not only is that an offense to God, but, uh, but you are not living in the reality of the mercies of God. Believe me, you get a glimpse of the mercies of God, you'll never be the same. And you live in the reality of the mercies of God. His deep affection for you it's just natural to respond, oh, yes, I give my life to you. I'm going to live for your glory and your honor. And, and so, as one theologian put it regarding this verse, this means that to fail to give yourself in complete and total obedience to God is not merely an offense to the moral sense, but it is a crucifixion of the intelligence It is as stupid as it is wicked. Think. How can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly to you without giving yourself utterly to him? So let's let's do that. Let's think about his mercies. If you don't think, you should be thinking about his mercies. Notice they're plural. Every Every day, you should be basking in the reality of his his mercies. So let's do that real quick. So what was our condition before Christ? Our condition was that we were separated from God. We did not have a relationship with God. We were enemies of God, under the wrath of God, doomed for eternal punishment from God. That's the spiritual condition of everyone on this planet before Christ. The Bible's really clear about that. Yet by the mercies, the deep affections of God for us, Jesus died in our place for our sins, forgave us, reconciled us, adopted us into his family, lavishes us with love daily, tells us his tender mercies are new every morning. And not only has he lavished us with his love, he's empowered us with his Holy Spirit and guarantees us a place in heaven. And so... When you, when you look at his tender mercies, this is what came to mind for me. 
the first 11 chapters, this is God running to us faster than we prodigal sons and daughters are running to him. You familiar with the, the story found in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who went out and blew his inheritance on wild living and then he comes to his senses and he comes back to to dad back to the farm and his father sees him from a distance and runs out to him and smothers him with kisses literally the Greek that's what it says smothers him his tender mercies are him running to us and smothering us with affection and love and you should bask in that daily it's, uh, that's just healthy Christian psychology. And so with each of these, I'm going to give you a probing question about true conversion, a number of questions actually, probing questions about true conversion. And this is good for us to evaluate our own lives. Am I truly converted? Am I born again? Has regeneration actually happened in my heart? And it's not only just for us, but it's also if you sit down with somebody, uh, a friend of yours that comes and says, hey, I'm born again. These would be questions you could ask them to see if they're truly born again. Because listen to me, you can walk the aisle, you can sign the card, you can get dunked in a tank and not have true conversion. It happens all the time. In fact, I would say that most of the people that do walk the aisle or sign the card or get dunked in the tank probably aren't truly converted. And, And what is preached in American churches is this cheap grace. And people don't even understand what it is that they're, they're making a commitment to. And so probing questions uh, about true conversion. By the way, this, uh, these would be great questions if you're looking for a spouse, okay? Mate selection, here you go. These are the questions you would ask them before you get married. So here's the first, one of the first questions, probing questions about true conversion. Can you tell me about your conversion story? So if someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm a, I'm a born-again Christian, I'm a Christian, I've, I've, you know, I've committed my life to Jesus, well, my first question was, tell me your conversion story. What was the season when you went from darkness to light? Now, here's, here's a, what you want to hear, and this would be a true conversion story. True conversion story would sound something like this. Well, I'm excited to tell you, before Christ, I followed my heart, did my own thing, was true to myself, did everything like the world does it, but now, but now I obey all that he says, whether I agree with him or not, because I trust his perfect love and infinite wisdom. See, that's, that's regeneration that's happened in that person's heart. Or it would also sound maybe something, something like this, that before Christ, my circumstances used to really get me down. They beat the living daylights out of me. But now I accept all that he sins into my life, whether I understand it or not, because I trust his, his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power working for my good and his glory. That's... So that's truly a heart that's being regenerated. They're beginning to see life totally differently. Or this one, before Christ, I used to use God, but now I enjoy God for all that he is in and of himself, not to get from him, but to be with him. I love him. So you know that conversion, true conversion has happened in that person's life. You begin to think, talk, and act differently. You realize more than ever that God created you, he redeemed you, therefore your whole life belongs to him. So that's the first one. Consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God, something you're doing every day. And number two, eliminate your non-biblical worldview. Eliminate your non-biblical worldview that's based on verse 2 of our text, do not be conformed, don't allow the world, don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't think, talk, and act like this world. Don't be conformed to this world. Now, he gives us the remedy here, but be transformed. So if you want to change your life, he's telling us how life change happens but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what do I, how do I know if my mind is being renewed? Well, right here. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, everyone has a worldview. Your worldview basically answers three, fundamentally three questions. What is the purpose of life? Why do we exist? What's the problem? What's our big problem? Everyone would agree we got a major problem on our hands here on this planet Earth. And so what's the problem? We, we, would, we would be different in our explanation of what we think the problem is, but there is a problem. And then the third one would be what is the solution? Now you, you are answering those three questions either by default or purposeful as you've thought out each of those questions. And, um, and so that's, that's part of this world view. What is your world view? Your world view is your interpretive grid for life and living. So you've heard me say this many times before. I want to continue so that you understand. You're able to take more responsibility for your life. It's not the events of life that make you or break you. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you. It's your evaluation of the events in life that make you or break you. It's not this pandemic that's stirring up inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression with people. It's their evaluation of this pandemic. And it's, you know, chances are they don't have a biblical worldview because believe me, if you have a biblical worldview, I'm telling you, you can face anything. You can face absolutely anything. And, it's, and so that's what he's talking about. If you've given your life to God, oh my goodness, you're going to want to have your mind and your heart renewed according to the will of God and know what his will is and knowing what he is up to. And so the biblical worldview is the purpose to know and make him known, to know God and to make him known. The problem, sin and suffering. The problem is that we've rebelled against God. And we experience, we're experiencing this crazy suffering, like this pandemic. It's all, that all comes from mankind's rebellion against God. That we think we can run everything on our own. We don't need God. And uh, so the, the problem is, is our sin or rebellion against God, the solution is Christ and his grace. I mean, do you, do you understand the, the gospel message is that God sent his son to this planet earth. He showed up here and he became flesh and dwelt among us and, and he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died to set us free from sin and death and evil to give us fullness of life to all who repent and believe in him. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. So how am I, how, how am I being transformed? What, what does that mean? By being transformed, how does this all happen within my own heart? Eliminate your non-biblical worldview. How do I eliminate my non-biblical worldview? By being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the only other place that Paul uses this word transformed is found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And this is what he says, and we all with unveiled face, this is, this is a beautiful verse, by the way, it's kind of one of my favorites, I just, I go back to this regularly, but and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, that's that word, are being transformed into the same image. We're becoming more and more like Jesus from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you'll notice in this verse, this is not behavioral modification. The Christian life is not a morally restrained will, getting yourself to do those things that you otherwise don't want to do, but you know that you have to do it. It's like, I've got I've to go to church. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to be kind to people. I, no, it's not a have to, it's a want to, because it's not an outside in, it's an inside out kind of transformation. And it's motivated not outwardly because someone puts a gun to your head, but because inwardly, oh my heart, my, your heart is ravished by the love of Jesus. It's smitten, you're captivated by him. And so that transforms you, that's true conversion. That's, that's regeneration. And uh, so it's not a morally restrained will, it's a supernaturally transformed heart that changes what you think, say, and do. Now, what is this beholding the glory of God? 
Well, we are to have our minds inflamed with the truth about who Christ is and what he has done for us. Those are the mercies of God, seeing how logical it is to just live our lives completely to him. And so our, our, our minds are inflamed with the truth about who Christ is and what he's done for us. And, and he says, and this will help you to discern the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So, so let me ask you this question. What is the primary way we know God's will? What is the primary way we know God's wor- uh, will? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that question real quick. Why don't you do that? Okay, some of you are just staring at me right now. I'm okay with that. Some of you actually uh, were talking. Some of you, maybe you don't, you don't know the answer to that one. So the answer is this, the Word of God. But it's more than just the Word of God. There's something that also needs to be understood. It is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. You cannot know and really understand who God is apart from the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God has to illuminate the Word of God in your heart, inflame your passion for Christ and who He is. And so let me give you another probing question about true conversion. How often do you read God's Word? If not much, then your mind's not being renewed. I mean, I understand you can read it without ever having your mind renewed, but if you're reading it through the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, it's going to be renewing your mind. I mean, how often do you read God's Word in comparison to all your screen time? Now, I understand that sometimes your screen time, as mine is, is reading God's Word on my phone or hearing it, but how often do you read God's Word? I mean, don't you think that would be a good question to ask someone that is a potential spouse? Do you ever read God's Word? Are you reading God's Word? I mean, that's just, just that's, that goes without saying. It's just really smart. And so, if your boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse sent you love letters and you never opened them up, then I would question your affection for them. And the same is true with God. No matter how hard it is, you're going to do everything you can to understand his word to you, and your mind will be renewed. So consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God. Eliminate your non-biblical worldview. Here's the next one. Evaluate humbly and accurately who you are in Christ. Evaluate humbly and accurately who you are in Christ. That's based on verses three through four. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I can't help but laugh when I read that statement because that's our culture. We live in a culture that nurtures this whole idea that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But he gives us the solution but to think with sober judgment as opposed to drunk judgment. That's that's what he's getting at. Be in touch with reality. And then he gives us the two ways that we are to look at our lives and evaluate our lives. The first one is the second part of verse 3. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's the first way. The second way is for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So verse 3a, assess yourself with humility and accuracy. So what is humanity's worst problem? is that we think too highly of ourselves. It's called pride. It's called self-centeredness. The Bible uses this word conceit. In the King James Version, instead of using conceit, it says vain glory. We're empty of glory because we were created to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ and be filled up with his glory. But when we rebelled against him, you can see it all the way back in the garden, when we rebelled against him, we became empty on the inside, desperate to fill up that emptiness. With, with the glory of something that is inferior to the superior glory of Christ. And, and so we find ourselves desperate, even in relationships and on our job. They tend to be a means to an end rather than celebrating God through all of what God has given you because we're operating out of a deficit rather than a completeness in, in Christ. And, um, and so... 
there's two forms of pride. There's an inflated view of one's own importance, abilities, and rights. That's an attitude of superiority. And then there's a deflated view of one's importance, abilities, and rights. That's an inferiority complex. Now, here's what's crazy about our culture. This is what our culture does, is that the culture would say, as it relates to their worldview, is that, well, the problem is, is that people just have really, really low self-esteems. They need to feel better about themselves. That's why these people do wicked things, because they were not treated right growing up. And, and, and so, so you're telling me that taking a person who has an inferiority complex and remedying that with a superiority complex is the answer? That's insane. That's our problem fundamentally is we're self-centered. We need to be taken out of ourselves. And it's called a blessed self-forgetfulness. Man, when you are beholding the glory of God, it's not that you think less of yourself, you think of yourself less. A blessed self-forgetfulness. I heard a guy say, a pastor say, no one goes to the Grand Canyon or the Swiss Alps to, to build their self-esteem. They do it to be caught up in wonder and awe and beauty. You're not even thinking about yourself when you are caught up in that wonder and beauty. So that, that's good, healthy psychology. So it's in the beholding of the glory of Christ, we become whole. We are, we are changed. We become more like Christ. And so that's all part of that renewing of our minds. So how do you, how do you get rid of this pride? Well, I've already talked about it, just by being captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ. And, and so the first way to measure ourselves, he says in verse 3b, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned so the word measure is not an amount, like he's given everybody a different amount of faith. It's not talking like that. It's actually just saying a standard of measurement is what it is. It's a standard of measure. This is what he gives to those who believe in him, those who are regenerated. There's a standard of faith. So, so we have all been given saving faith with our identity in Christ. It's a gift. It's not achieved. It's received. And that is the first way you are to measure yourself. And so, so what is true about us? What is the standard of faith? Well, we've been working through this series to help us to understand that. What is my, my true identity? We've started the, this series off by talking about that you and I are a new creation, a brand new life. That's regeneration. And then the following weeks, we talked about we are free, redeemed by the Son, we are adopted, beloved by the Father. We are alive, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are a worshiper shining brightly in darkness. We are a member connected to the church. That was last weekend. This weekend, we are a masterpiece created for good works. In the next three weekends, we're going to talk about how we are secure, never forsaken. That's next weekend. The following weekend, we are a citizen longing for home. We are unfinished, a work in progress. And then we're going to head into the book of Philippians for the summer months. So I'm excited about that. But verse 3b, you are the same in your standing in the gospel. That is the standard of faith. So it doesn't matter if you are male or female, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, adult or youth, or have a moral or immoral past, or you're very gifted or not very gifted. Every Christian has the the exact standing in the gospel. You have the same standing before God as, as the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Better yet, you have the same standing before God of Jesus Christ. That is out of this world. It's that imputed righteousness that he gives to us. It's gift. And, and, and so how does the Father, how much does the Father love the Son? That's how much he loves you. How much does the Father adore the Son? That's how much he adores you. How much does the Father rejoice in the Son? That's how much he rejoices over you right now. It can't be diminished by your, your bad life or can't be increased by your good life. It's ours, and that's what begins to transform us when we understand that. We begin to see the beauty and the glory 
we begin to see his amazing grace, our amazing God and all that he's done for us. And so here's another probing question about true conversion is that when, when you evaluate humbly and accurately who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ, it's just normal, it's natural for you, for Christ to become precious to you. He becomes precious to you. Is Christ precious to you? Well, Pastor Ray, that's not very masculine. I would have a hard time saying that. Well, then maybe you haven't really encountered him because you won't even be able to come up with the words to even describe what he means to you. He will be precious to you. Is Jesus more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than anyone or anything else? Here's a great question. Looking for a spouse, you need to ask them, uh, what kind of affection do you have for Jesus? Tell me about your affection for Jesus. And they ought to be able to say things like, oh my goodness, I love him so much. Man, he means the world to me. By, by the way, do you say that? You should be saying that regularly in your marriages, in your relationships. You should be telling each other, I love Jesus. Not a, like it's some weird thing, like we feel awkward. Well, of course I love Jesus. Well, tell people you love Jesus. That's, that's a great question for us. If, if you truly have conversion, true conversion in your life, you're going <laughs> to... You can't keep quiet about him. I mean, that's just, that's all there is, I mean, to that. So that's truly, so tell me about your affection for Christ. If, if you don't see that their heart is captivated by Jesus, then they could have a false conversion, or maybe they're just a lukewarm Christian, and they need a lot of help. They need to be able to see clearly the beauty and the glory of Christ. So verse 3b, you are the same in your standing in the gospel standard of faith. But, but here's the second way that we are to evaluate ourselves. You are different in your abilities to minister. For as, as one, as, for as in one body, that's us, we have many members, that's all of us, and the members do not all have the same function. So let me ask you this question, where... Where should you get your sense of acceptance, security, and significance? Where should you get your healthy sense of, uh, we can, our culture says self-esteem. I guess that would be appropriate. So your, your understanding of who you are in Christ, where should you get that? Should you get it from, you can answer this out loud, from your ministry or from your membership in God's family? You don't get your identity, security, and all of, you know, whatever I'm, I'm saying, your self-image from your ministry, but you get it from the fact that you are a member of the family of God. You're part of God's family. You don't do good works. You don't minister for your identity, but from your identity. Otherwise, ministry success will go to your head and ministry failure will go to your heart. That's what's caused a lot of pastors to crash and burn because their identity is in their ministry and the success of their ministry. And so when their ministry is going well, it goes to their head. When it's not going well, it goes to their heart. So no matter how gifted you may be, ministry is not a showcase of your greatness, but a showcase of God's greatness. I love uh, the story of Jesus and his disciples in Luke 10. Jesus sends out the 72 disciples uh, for a ministry trip, and they come back with glowing stories of ministry success, and Jesus responds to them by saying this, don't rejoice in how gifted and successful you are in ministry, but rejoice that your names are, are written in heaven. That is an unshakable identity, regardless of whether you're successful or not so successful in ministry or in your job or in your family or any other. Your identity is unshakable when it's in the fact that your name is written in heaven. So how do you evaluate humbly and accurately who you are in Christ? By, by seeing 
by seeing that we are all the same in our standing with God, but different in our, in our ministry. Ministry shouldn't make you feel superior or inferior to, to anyone, to anyone. So masterpiece, we are a masterpiece created for good works. Consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God. Eliminate your non-biblical worldview. Evaluate humbly and accurately who you are in Christ. And number four, cooperate with others, church family, in discovering your spiritual gifts. That's based on verses five and six. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So we have each been given a unique shape. It's an acronym that we use here. And that unique shape is, has to do with your spiritual gift, heart, what God has put in your heart, abilities, personality, and experiences, life experiences. And so... So we have each been given a unique shape that equips us for doing a particular set of good works in the church and in the world, in our homes, in our neighborhood, on the job that God created us to do for his glory. So so how do you discover how God has shaped you? Well, what do you enjoy doing? What's really fulfilling to you? Uh, building buildings, that's great, that's fantastic, we need that, but are you doing that for the glory of God? Do you realize that he's given you those gifts and those passions and those desires? Here's another question, are you any good at what you enjoy? Is there a fruitfulness? Or here's another question, what problems do you most notice? Your perception, you come into a small group and you go, wow, this small group is not led well, and they seem so disorganized here, that really bothers me. So what is that saying about you more, more, than, more than anything is, is that, uh, in other words, it, it is possible that you are especially sensitive to the kinds of needs God has called you to meet. And you might have a special burden along with that for children or youth or singles or marriages or parenting. But any time someone comes to me, and this happens pretty regularly, they'll come to me and say, Pastor Ray, this is the ministry that we need. Here's the needs that we can meet, that we should be meeting. You know how I typically respond is, tag, you're it. We've been waiting for you. Step up. You fulfill that task. And so... Always keep that in mind. And you can also discover your giftings through just study the biblical spiritual gifts list found in Romans 12, 1 through 12, and Ephesians 5. But here's the, here's the bottom line. The best way to discover your gifts is not by taking inventories, but by trying all kinds of different ministries. You just get involved. You just roll up, or roll up your sleeves and get involved. In, and, and there's no shortage of ministries that you could get involved in here either. And so here's another probing question about true conversion. What are the gifts God gave to you upon conversion? Now, in our game of life, we help you to kind of discover what those are. But what are the gifts that God has given to you upon conversion? Are you committed to a local church family? How are you using your gifts to build up your church family? Now, I know that some of you are probably saying about this time, you're saying, wait, 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 okay, you're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, but what about the fruit of the Holy Spirit? If he's truly transforming my heart, shouldn't I have more fruit? Yes! Yes, absolutely. Love, joy, peace, patience. Yeah, that should be happening in you. If you're beholding the glory of Christ, you're being transformed. And there should be the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit cannot be really separated. Because you see, love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. How do we gladly meet the needs of others? Through our gifts, through our unique shape. We can minister to others and help others to see more clearly the beauty in the glory of Christ. And so, if you truly love Jesus, then you will love his bride through a commitment to a local church family. If you don't love his bride, then you don't really know or love Jesus. There are a lot of people that are just floating around that would classify themselves as Christians and they're not committed to a local church family and I don't think that they really know Jesus or love Jesus. I really, I really don't. 
Because if you love Jesus, you're gonna love his bride. You're gonna love, and, and his bride is represented through local church families like Desert Breeze. I mean, the whole New Testament, for the most part, is written to local church families. And so that's gonna be really important to you. No matter how bad you were treated in the last church, or how offended you were, you're going to be able to just say, well, that's not how church is supposed to be. Let me go find a church that's actually living according to the Bible, that maybe even teaches the Bible. A lot of churches don't even really teach the Bible. So, but you're going to have a heart for that. Let me, let me see if I can help you understand Jesus' affection for his bride. I was bullied as a freshman in high school. I was uh, five foot, weighed 98 pounds. And uh, I was bullied as a freshman in high school. I was bullied as an apprentice working construction. That's kind of par for the course in a male-dominated environment. And uh, I experienced some ridicule and bullying even on the fire department because of my faith. And, and, and for the most part, I was able to handle it and get beyond it, water on a duck's back, no big deal. I got tougher through all of that, and I could handle it. It, it was really no big deal. I got tougher I, had t- I have tougher skin, but yet tried to maintain a tender heart in, in all of that. But having been married for 42 years, if someone messed with my bride, my girl, my Nancy, I'm going to be all over you. And it doesn't matter how many there are. There's something that rises up within me. You're not going to bully her. You're not going to mistreat her. There's just something within me. I think it's God-given. And the more I understand Christ's love for his church, his affection for his church, the more that stirs up within me. If I am imperfect and sinful, love my wife enough to take on the world, what is this love of Christ for his church? It is out of this world. It's amazing. That's the appropriate use of that word right there. It is amazing. And that's why he tells us that in in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's breathtaking. Masterpiece created for good works. Consecrate your entire life as a sacrifice to God. Eliminate your non-biblical worldview through the renewal of your mind in God's word, evaluate humbly and accurately who you are in Christ, cooperate with others within your church family and discovering your spiritual gifts. Number five, activate your spiritual gifts. Activate, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. He says, let us use them. Let us use them. Activate your gifts. If prophecy in proportion to, your, to our faith, in service in our serving, The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Why? Why do we want everyone to activate their gifts? Because together we achieve so much more. It's called synergy. Synergy is where we together can achieve more than the sum of our individual efforts. One plus one doesn't equal two. In synergy, it's more like one plus one equals five or six. There's much more that can be done. Now, Let me just very quickly walk you through the implications from Paul's anatomy lesson found not only in this text but also in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 31, that whole chapter. And these are true statements about who we are as Christians. Every member is a minister in God's body. So when you made a commitment to Christ, when you came to faith in him, by grace through faith in him, you became a minister. That's That's what you're called. That's your identity to minister to others, to be involved in ministry. Here's the second statement, every member has a different function. So don't ever compare yourself to anyone else. Listen to me, you are a unique, one-of-a-kind original. God broke the mold when he made you. Praise God. That's what I know some of you were thinking about me. And so every member has a different function. Every member's ministry is important. Your ministry is important here. Your involvement here is important. 
It makes a difference. By the way, your generosity was amazing over this uh, last nine weeks. It, was, it, just, it, it proved to us that we are a healthy church. I think there was one time it dropped below the budget, but it, overall it was like, it was through the roof. It was amazing. I was just thinking, wow, the, these people really love Jesus and they're really healthy. And though we are apart, they're continuing to support what's going on and they love the Lord. And so, uh, only you can do what you are shaped to do and if you don't do it, it's not going to get done and your church family will suffer for it. Here's the last statement. Every member belongs to the others. Your gifts do not belong to you, they belong to others. My gifts of leadership, teaching, and evangelism are not for me but for you. These are not to build my ego but to build up the church. And so, here's the last probing question about true conversion. Tell me about the fruit or the good works in your life. How are you involved in ministry? Why are you involved in ministry? How are you helping people around you in this church, around you and in this church to see and to savor the beauty and the glory of of your Savior? So let me go back to the first question that we started this uh, teaching off with. Are you God's masterpiece? Is there evidence that God is working in you? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is your, your rational worship. It just makes sense. It's your spiritual worship to God. Let's pray. So, Father God, we are your masterpiece created for good works. We, we consecrate our entire life as a sacrifice to you. In fact, I pray for those that are here this weekend that have never consecrated their entire life to you, that they would do that and continue to do that every day by acknowledging their sin that separates them from you, believing that Christ died on the cross for our sins and confessing him as Savior and Lord, giving their life to him. God, do that work of regeneration in their lives. And so we consecrate our entire life as a sacrifice to you. Help us to eliminate our non-biblical worldview through the renewing of our mind in your word. Lead us to evaluate humbly and accurately who we are in Christ, not feeling superior or inferior to anyone. As we cooperate with others in our church family and discovering our spiritual gifts, may every one of us activate our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ so that we can reach an ever-increasing number of people with the glorious gospel of our Savior. We pray these things for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys very much. See you next weekend.